0: What is good everybody? My name is Tim Karen. This is the Performance Health Podcast. Today we're talking about Newell's model with coach Eric Schmidt. Now, if you're new to the website, if you're new to the podcast, this is going to be a deep dive into models that are relevant to strength conditioning. You're going to have to strap in, get ready, and really take copious notes. Now, if you're a member of the PH membership, you get access to the web shows, the notes, the transcripts. It makes this process a lot easier, especially with models like Newell's, or even last week we talked about Ericsson's model. This is gonna be a deep dive into all topics. so. Do yourself a favor of becoming a member of the PH membership so you can get access to the web shows and a lot of other resources to help support your learning. It's going to be a huge resource for you. So get over to phpodcast.com, sign up for a membership, get access to all of the information around this model. You won't regret it. All right. All right. So we're going to talk about Newell's model today. I was Just giving me solo. Corey's out sick. So I wanted to make sure that we get this out so we can keep these great web shows pumping. So Newell's model. First off, it's a model that we can use to better understand the demands and the organization and the structure of our training, right? It's broken up into three main areas, right? We have the task, we have the organism, and then we have the environment. So if we look at the tasks, that's pretty much what we're doing from drills and exercise selection. And then we look at the environment, that's where we're doing these, t- these drills or these tasks within And then the final aspect is the organism, the person that's doing it, right? And we're looking at from all of those perspectives, really how do we establish this concept of constraints? And we talked about this quite a bit, but never really gave a fair explanation for it. So this is a really good opportunity to go into some depth on it. So if we think about it from a constraint perspective, the more constraints we have, the easier it is in terms of a task. Right, so if we're thinking about this big, high-level concept of looking at, I'm going to do a task that's hopefully going to increase performance in some way, shape, or form. Right, and that's that's a good start point. Right, like I want to increase performance. We talked about it with Erickson's model last last web show, this concept of goal, challenge, feedback, and focus. Right, if we look at those four quadrants in terms of what we should be thinking about for every training session, every set, every exercise, et cetera, we should be thinking about a similar construct with Newell's and looking about the task and how we apply constraints. So, for thinking, hey, I want to make sure that my athlete or client can be successful, then I want to start to think, how do I apply more constraints to give a easier ramp? And then following up with, how do I remove constraints to get them better? It's the same concept as progression, right? So if you've gone through any of the stuff we've done within Strength Deficit, a lot of our curriculum, what we're coming out here with our third book and our membership, you'll see this concept of progression is built upon simple to to complicated or slow to fast or light to heavy or stable to unstable. All that is just... Constraint-based models, and if you're really thinking about it, specifically stable to unstable or closed to open, right? And I'm going to focus on closed to open because I think that's a really good breakdown of the task, organism, and environment. So thinking about change of direction or multi-directional speed. One of the areas that we try to progress people to is this open-sided games, meaning that we're going to have a an objective of tag someone, get across the line, get this ball through this hoop whatever it is right here's the here's the outcome of the game here's the start self-organized utilize implicit learning and figure out a strategy to accomplish the task right and the, the maybe we make it competitive maybe we make it individual it doesn't really have any criteria that it needs to be competitive it just needs to be undetermined and unscripted it's the classic line from Shoe Dog, tell them what you want, but not how you want it and see what happens, that concept. And if we start to break down this open-sided game, you know, there's there's two schools of thought here. One, we just build upon that, right? We let them be more organic in environments and naturally adapt, which is random and chaotic. Uh, and there's a lot of pundits that will support that logic versus this other end, and this kind of gets into pedagogy and what we want to look at from maybe a top-down or bottom-up approach, meaning that top-down is an end goal and we're going to start to reverse engineer what we need to do from the end backwards. Or we look at it from a bottom-up and we start to think about what are the individual pieces that we need to start to build to get that person to be able to do the end goal or the task at end. So it's from the beginning to the end or end to the beginning. And we look at that if we're basically layering in constraints, but we look at open games or open sided drills or things that have no real specific manner in which to do it. We're essentially looking at this from the two perspectives. So if I can start to just add that in and let that be some sort of just thing they have to adapt to, or we can use it as a proxy to our ability to tolerate a low constraint environment. And one of the things that I always I always like to see in regards to any progression I was doing, let's say it was a multi-directional speed drill, and we, we talk about lateral deceleration mechanics of that support leg is outside the hip, the shoulder and we change direction more efficiently, right? So thinking about a pro agility or anything where we're laterally shuffling, shuffling, and we're trying to push off a trail leg and absorb with the lead leg, but if that shoulder gets outside of that lead leg, we see a lot of momentum going in that direction, and we see inefficient change of direction, right? So let's say I spend a whole eight week period working on those mechanics, building up speed, amplitude, maybe adding some some different elements like a med ball or a dowel or something to really like give a lot of feedback. You know, this creating an implicit learning environment as we talked about with the Franz Bosch system. And we start to think about, okay, now eventually the rubber's got to hit the road and we start to take constraints away and we see the fruits of our labor. We either see that manifest into I, that person in an open environment with no real structure, was able to maintain those mechanics that we worked on for the last eight weeks or not. And you have two schools of thought there. One, was it a good progression? Did we slowly but surely remove constraints to the point where they went to the open game and they were able to uphold the mechanics that we think are optimal for change of direction? Or they maybe we didn't do enough of a job of making a point of emphasis, or maybe that we just were overkill and we could have had that in a fraction of the time. And I think these are all important notes to make when we look at a low constraint task and thinking about that in its relation to high constraint progressions and building up that. But then we look at the environment we talk about this too of this other element of, now we have a low constraint or high constraint environment as well, right, that we can increase the complexity by doing it within a competitive environment with another athlete or group of athletes. We can increase the demand uh, by doing it within a, short, a higher density or shorter rest period or doing it in a certain temperature or certain environment that's not necessarily perfect for, for energy utilization. And we start to think about, okay, that has an influence on the ability to perform a task right? And then the final aspect is the organism, right? The, the person doing it. And you look at that from that person either has great recovery or adaptive responses or very low recovery and adaptive responses. And these are all really foundational things to think about as you start to look at, all right, now I really want to understand those three areas of focus when I start to program out a drill based off of the, the, the overall outcome I want from that task or that drill or exercise, the environment that athletes can be played into, placed into, whether it's a competitive or non-competitive or a very high-stakes environment like competition or versus practice, or we look at it from the other level of we have a a organism that maybe can recover from doing high-stress work or not, and those are the really important things, and we start to look at that from our progressions. And we start to look at that from the organization of our training. One of the other questions we want to talk about is this pros and cons versus high versus low constraint. You know, the the concept that we're looking at from here, is it is it getting too in the weeds? Is it getting too much into this minutia that's not really productive? I would argue we probably do this intuitively. You know, to be honest, I think we look at things in this manner that we feel like is going to be effective for that individual. Now, and that, I don't think that's an abstract thought. I don't think I'm saying anything revolutionary in that. I think a lot of times we have this logic and intuition about our program design, or exercise selection, our progression, our progressive overload, based off the individual looking at the... Looking at the point of diminishing returns, and then when was the last time they train. You know, all these variables are going into your mind as you start to lay out a program, and I feel like that's common sense, that's logical, that's intuition. But if we can figure out a way to classify a task, even on that the the shortest order, right? Looking at just simply the task and the exercise, and you know, I, I've referred to this as governor-based training. You know, looking at it from what is the potential for external load is a has a a governor effect, meaning that there's gonna be some sort of limit or ceiling to what we're able to do. For instance, the governor for a kettlebell goblet squat is a lot higher than a low bar back squat, right? Thinking about the construct of what is the potential for external load, while I put enough constraints on that movement that I've limited external load, meaning that I have an anterior load, grip is a limiting factor, maybe on a slant board, uh, where they have to organize themselves in space as their body's kind of falling forward and they have to react by pulling their thorax down, lifting their front end of the pelvis up, and then figuring out a way to sit straight down. Versus a back squat, they can lift the thorax, they can push their pelvis or into a po- anterior tilt, and they can shift their weight back to alter their center of mass. You don't have that luxury in the goblet position with the heels elevated. so. As we look at that governor-based model to apply essentially a constraint on external loading, we can very simply say that's either part of a progression or that's a strategy I want to utilize once I find out that their tolerance to external load is limited from either having a high stress or coming off a injury or potentially even a a former illness like flu or cold, or potentially just have a lot of other systemic stresses like practices and games travel, et cetera, or they're in finals and we know that their immune system is going to be compromised, whatever variables, but I might apply a governor-based approach, which is the same concept as constraints, right? I'm putting on constraints so I limit external loading, you know, and the other end of it, I I can take away those constraints and make it very dynamic, make it very reactionary, right? So I do something with a Let's say a tsunami bar or a bamboo bar where they have to stabilize, co contract, a lot of other dynamics involved with that. It's definitely novel. They're going to have to react and respond to that in an efficient manner. And when we're looking at this pros and cons of constraints versus no constraints, there's going to be a dynamic at play where you can get so in the weeds on every singular aspect. The one thing that's nice you know, I'll say this with confidence, is when you're governed by principles, it makes applying constraints or taking away constraints a lot easier. Just when you're thinking about how complex, meaning that there's no real A to B, there's no start or finish, there's no direct linear path to improving someone's performance. There's always a multivariate, complex environment and a complex organism you can get completely overwhelmed about applying constraints or not applying constraints. the the advice I would give to you, once you have this knowledge and insight that you can toggle pretty much anything in regards to the task, the organism, the environment, you can get very wrapped up in every single thing being potentially even pedantic and not really that well, that well or not efficient anymore, you know? So the advice is start with principles. And they're very simple, individuality, specificity, progressive overload, progression, reversibility, diminishing return. Just start with those six. Look at certain rules like structural balance and they can't recover from it, we shouldn't do it kind of thing. And then we followed up with, okay, now I'm looking at the individual task and saying, does this need to be a high constraint or low constraint? And where am I at in the off-season or in-season? Where am I at with that individual? Are they a novice or advanced? Where am I at with... Have I given ample opportunity to progress and develop the biomechanics, the biomotor, the bioenergetics? You know, those things are are a lot more common sense and intuition. And it's like relative intensity as well, right? Looking at it from the construct of should you use intensity or should you use a just rep, rep bracket and let them cybernetically load it or load it organically based off of how they feel. I, I think there's a dynamic at play of when we have too much variance or optionality, I find we're running at the mercy of not really pushing the threshold as much as we should. And when we have a structure to external loading, like progressive overload and rates of progressive overload, rep brackets or relative intensity or just intensity in general, you have a little bit more of a good versus a bad execution, right? And yeah, your target is 85% for five. And yes, they might not be able to hit that on any given day, even if you do progress it appropriately because of other outside stressors that you have no control over. But at least you have some sort of barometer of we're intending to hit this and we couldn't for various reasons. Our objective is to try to get to that next week and then try to build up upon that after that. And the same thing with high and low constraint, right? We're looking at it from, okay, the task is this, it's a very simple task. Can they just perform a leg press for a set of 10 every week trying to add a little bit of weight. That's it, right? That's your. That's extremely high constraint external load option to develop the anterior chain of the lower body, right? And, that, and that's that's a fine place to start. And then as I go through and I start to take away constraints and I start to look at potentially maybe some reflexive work or maybe some elements like a bamboo bar or progressing that into a depth jump or something where it's going to be a little bit more challenging to the system with less constraints, you can start to say, okay, the, the, the intent here was to develop a quality or an output. And whether that progression of removing constraints or adding constraints was well thought out or not becomes, becomes more apparent and transparent. And that's the key here, that you have some sort of indicator and litmus to say, I am doing this in a systematic way, and I'm looking at these three areas of organism, task, environment, and I'm having a strategy to for each one of them. And I'm thinking objectively about what is a high constraint, low constraint, and trying to organize my training in a way that makes sense in those three areas. And I have a rationale as to why. And then when, if it works out great, you your, your construct or your hypothesis was accurate, if it wasn't, then no. I and mean, you got to go back to the drawing board. And I think that's... You have an indicator of what's good versus bad. And you had an indicator if you're doing a good job or not doing a good job. All right, how do we know if we need more or less? So that's kind of the final question here, and I will go on a pretty long tangent. But one of the areas that, and we'll just focus on biomotor, right? Force, velocity, work. I think those are the three easiest things to understand, right? So force is associated with strength, velocity is associated with speed, and work is associated with capacity. We have an indicator of... What is optimal versus suboptimal? We can test this in a variety of ways, right? We can look at 1RM strength for force. We We can look at a relative strength assessment for your 1RM relative to your body mass. We can look at counter movement jump or sprint profiling. We can look at a conditioning test like a VO2 max test or anything where we're doing repeatability. And we can start to create normative data and we start to see, okay, that person is exceptional or in a lower quartile than they should be, right? And we start to think about, okay, well, for me to get this person out of this area and I start to establish what is a progression off of that, that's fine, that's a good thought. And when we're breaking down let's just say force, for instance, and we look at this force as a mechanism to alter the force velocity curve, meaning that if I increase someone's ability to produce force by association, they should have a higher bandwidth to produce more velocity, right? The the dynamic, if we can produce optimal velocity of 40% of a 1RM and we increase our 1RM, that 40% was our previous 50, 60, 70, but now it's a higher weight move relatively the same speed, right? And that's, that's kind of the logic associated with altering the force velocity curve. It's basically you're shifting to the right, which is fine, it's, it's good logic. And we assess that. We look at it from a one RM, and okay, this person is a 1 to 1.0 relative strength for front squat to body mass, which is, let's just say average to below average easy fix let's get them stronger right we focus on relative strength absolute strength we're trying to improve their ability to produce force at a higher level so we start to apply constraints to focusing on increasing force or external load on the system and that could come in the way of neurological so we have greater rate coding, motor unit coupling, synchronization of motor units all the fancy terms associated with neurophysiology. We could also look at it from the other end of just increasing cross-sectional muscle area and having more sarcomeres at our disposal to create external force. All part of the equation. And that could be the focal point because we did an inventory of they are or kind of weak from the construct of what we look at relatively speaking to other people or what successful people in the sport have and can do. Okay, cool, let's, let's focus on that. But let's find out that they're exceptional in, in force development and we really need to focus externally on something different like velocity or potentially even their recovery rate sucks. So they got to focus on capacity. And when we're looking at that, that RM or that person's relative strength and you say, okay, they are three times their body weight in terms of front squat relative strength, which is exceptional elite, and not many people in the world can do that, but let's just say that's part of the equation, that we have someone who can do that. And you find out that their force velocity curve is not really great because they can't produce high amounts of speed at sub-maximal weights. It's also a very obvious and intuitive thing to say, that person just needs to improve raw speed. And you start to apply constraints to accommodate them moving at higher speeds. That's also part of the equation. I think sometimes we lose sight of that. When we look at a test like a isomid dipole and we compare that to a counter movement jump and we get a dynamic strength index or a DSI and we see this like this 80% mark and above, okay, like that person potentially needs to work on more, more force and improving the ability to generate force, meaning that their, their ability to produce High amounts of force is not as great as their ability to produce velocity. And the same thing on the other end of the spectrum, if it's below 0.6, they need to focus on more ballistic stuff or more velocity-based things, and or 60%. And sometimes they fall right in the middle, and you do more of a, a grenade approach of everything and anything and just being very systematic. And that might go into conjugate or concurrent methods and just basically getting a little bit of everything every single day or microcycle. My point being, it's when you do a really good job of inventorying biomotor ability and you start to go, okay, where am I, where's my focus from a task perspective? Okay, the exercises that are best, most corresponding to increasing force or increasing velocity or increasing work. And this is the thing about work that's so funny. You know, a lot of times we poo-poo and, and just diminish the value of stationary exercise pieces. But you get a person with very poor biomechanics, very poor force output because they have poor biomechanics, very poor velocity because they have poor biomechanics, and they still need to lose weight and improve body composition, your options are really limited in terms of you need some stationary pieces and a very high constraint environment to do long bouts of uninterrupted exercise. If biomechanics are the limiting factor to bioenergetics and more capacity, you're probably not going to be able to make it very far, right? Because biomechanics was the ultimate trump card when it comes down to improving work capacity. Because if they can't move, they can't do it for long durations. They can't do it heavy and they can't do it very fast. So there's the other constraint. Okay. Well, biomechanics comes into play now because I'm looking at those biomotor qualities of force, velocity, and work and their biomechanics are not really adequate. Okay. I have to apply constraints from an exercise or a task perspective to, Get that person doing higher amounts of force. Imagine a leg press, leg press versus a bamboo bar overhead squat, right? Just just saying it out loud, right? That would be a continuum there. One end is really low constraint, the bamboo overhead squat, versus one end is a very high constraint, a leg press. And if that person needs to increase cross-sectional muscle area, increase force output, poor biomechanics, Probably like press is your best option. On the other note, if we look at it from increasing their work capacity and they have opto, awful biomechanics, okay, well, what are your options, right? And I think that's the thing that we fo- so often look at. Like, all right, let's work tempo runs. Let's do these very elaborate circuits with a lot of triplanar functional movement or unconventional movements. That's fine. That's great. But they're not going to reach a a capacity or intensity with their movement or their heart or their cardiovascular system that actually creates aerobic or oxidative adaptations. And I think that's the rub. It's a lot of times we get preoccupied with, you know, fancy gimmicky movement and we lose sight of, it's a very low constrained environment and it's not helping us accomplish a task that that person absolutely needs. And the same thing with speed, right? We just... Default to open sided games or very low constraint environments because it's novel and it's challenging from a cognitive low perspective. But if they just can't run fast, I mean, why not just getting them running in a straight line and focus on that until it's not a problem anymore, right? If this person's running a 14 second, 100 meter sprint and they're playing an anaerobic phosphogen sport like football, basketball, baseball, chances are you probably will need a very high constraint, linear speed environment like pushing a sled. Or pulling a sled, or running uphill, or just doing some drill work like a a skips, a run, something that's going to be more constrained, but actually going to be more conducive to improving mechanics, improving the the rate of force development, front side, backside, whatever it's going to be. But the notion that hey, just get them going in open games and just let them do random ad hoc ad hocish stuff, it's limited, you know. And like uh, the final aspect, I think this is something I really kind of. I don't know, personal, personal, I've been noticing a lot lately is this idea of injuries of the product from lack of novelty. I think that's a poorly constructed logic. I think it's just clickbait, to be honest. I look at it from the construct of, in in the book, and I have it behind me, it's this spinal engine that the spine is designed to move and, and locomote, that we are, we are this, bipedal animal, meaning that we're on two feet and the spine moves in all planes of motion between sagittal, frontal, and transverse and simultaneously. And I think that's fine. And I think that's like, okay, logic. Uh, I don't think that's that crazy of a thought that the spine is designed to move. It's designed to flex, extend, laterally flex, rotate and some combination of both at all in any given time or all all three in, in any given point in time. But the issue is when we start to Use that as a mechanism for external or progressive overload, right? We start to do overloaded Jefferson curls or Zercher positions that are really outside the construct or, you know, loading up and flexion and rotation. Uh, and I find that is, is misguided logic. Like you can apply a low constraint environment with low external load, right? The environment can change. Right, we we don't have to necessarily like lock ourselves into everything needs to be progressively overloaded if we have a very low constraint task. And I think that's the issue. It's oh yeah, that problem with injury is because we're not loading a low constraint very low const- low constraint task and a low constraint environment. And I think if you really think about it, I think the the systemic issue with back pain or non-contact injuries is probably rushing some of these progressions and not applying constraints in the right appropriate manner. That if the person can't co-contract and stabilize their spine in the frontal and transverse plane while in sagittal plane flexion, I don't necessarily think it's fixed by adding external load. I think it's a either range of motion problem, they don't have the passive range of motion or the functional ability to get to that range, or it's a mobility problem, meaning the active range of motion to stabilize and control at that range or create some sort of contraction at that range. And then the synchronization or the coordination of those things, right? The Now we have to get to that range, control, have the ability to control that range and organize sequence in a way. And this is why it's so important to understand models, looking at just traditional flexibility models, mobility models, looking at tensegridity, looking at things like DNS or PRI, or even to the point of this, you know, self-organizational structure, like... Gary Gray's work or Franz Bosch work, where we're essentially just putting constraints up or down and trying to figure out how to organize and give that person the best chance to be successful. And they may be applying some positional constraints like DNS and FMS of looking at it from a prone supine sideline quadruped, quadruped, I should say, a, a half kneeling, tall kneeling, standing, split stance, single leg stance, like whatever have you. All those have different impacts up and down the chain. And if I was going to establish, hey, what is it going to be the best way to to prevent injury? It's looking at it from, I'm going to apply constraints from all those models and I'm going to remove constraints from all those models based off their ability to tolerate and handle that. And then I'm going to start to adjust that based off the organism and I'm going to adjust to the environment that I'm placing them in, right? If I have a group of a hundred people and we're doing loaded Jefferson curls, which if you're not familiar with it, it just looks like basically a really bad deadlift. I'm I'm sorry. I just I I don't care. I don't really care if you like defers and deadlifts or really crappy load of Zercher things, or if you admire this guy with no shirt and jeans in a parking lot doing a Zercher deadlift. Like I, that doesn't have any bearing on me. And if you're sitting there saying I'm training like people like with white gloves, and yeah, I, I maybe I am because I actually have something to lose. I have a lot of people I train, and a lot of people who actually have a lot at stake with the train with me. So I don't have the fortunate to taking proverbial risk and using them as lab rats, but I would say it's it's not even good logic. It's really it's really unfortunate that we are implying these very low constraint tasks, meaning they're just letting them do it however they want in a very really low constraint environment, which is dangerous. It's a great combination for disaster, and then looking at it from potentially the organism is not ready to handle it, and that, I think that's the issue. So if we're going to break all this down, you know, just breaking it, coming back to the real premise is the organism, the task, the environment, and trying to structure your training in a way that makes sense for that organism and the task and the environment that they're placed in. All right, guys, we got Eric coming on. He did an amazing job on this next segment. I think he's going to talk a lot more in depth about the areas I'm kind of just touching upon. So we'll we'll have Eric talk about this and let's get this thing going. All right, everybody, we got Eric on today. We're talking about Newell's model, which is probably one of the most important models you've never heard of. So we're going to talk a lot about that. Eric is our resident expert on Newell's. He's taking copious notes and we're excited to dive into it. So this is going to be awesome, man. Eric, how are you doing? And talk to me about what do you think about in terms of constraints with your program? So that's a two-parter.
1: Oh, man. Yeah, big Carl Newell guy over here. And yeah, I think about this quite a bit. I think constraints is a, I, I don't know if it's a hot topic, but it's certainly a topic that I, I think regardless of if you're familiar with this model or not, you're doing things that would probably abide by some of the kind of concepts around around the constraints-based approach. So. Yeah. So Carl Newell is a professor, worked a lot in like developmental with like developmental disabilities. And basically, he talks about like this, this constraints based model, which is applied to basically how do we construct like movement, you know, and so there's kind of like this triangle, I don't know, if visual is probably helpful here. But there's this triangle of like, you know there's tasks that interact there's the environment that interact and there's this organism that interacts to again kind of uh to to kind of generate some form of a of a movement expression and and all three of those things are just components of that and ultimately when you talk about the constraints on this in terms of of like how does that how does that apply to us it's really just kind of constraining certain elements within those three interacting components of, 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 how somebody moves. And then that, that way you can kind of help facilitate maybe a, a more consistent, repetitive movement expression from somebody. So obviously you can apply that to exercise. You can apply that to something specific to a task, like a, a sporting task and manipulate certain components of, of how they, how an athlete kind of expresses things to ultimately kind of get, again, get consistency, get things how you want them, and and apply training stress in a more directed fashion. So there's a lot of stuff to that. I'm sure that was probably messy, but you know, great. it's it's a it's it's a useful approach to think about how do we actually help kind of get what we want out of training.
0: Now, one of the things that I think will be helpful here, and one of the hard parts about this model is this concept of high constraint versus low constraint. And which one is perceived to be harder, right? It feels more intuitive to say a high constraint environment would be more complicated or complex, but that's actually not the case, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I- examples are
1: probably are probably helpful here. So when we're, I guess, when we're talking about constraints, and yeah, there's a lot of directions I could go in with this right now, to be honest What's with
0: you. What aspect. You know, so we got task, organism, and environment. Let's talk about mm-hmm. the task, right? I think the task is most synonymous with exercise selection, right? Yeah. So let's talk about task and let's talk about a high constraint task.
1: Yeah. So a a man, a high constraint task. You could just pick pick something that you want to do, right? So let's pick like a, something an example like within a sport. So say I I need to advance a basketball from this part of the court to that part of the court. And, you know, there's there's a lot of different ways that I can do that, right? So I can use my feet if I really wanted to do that. I could just hold it and walk from one side to the next. But obviously, both of those things are not, they're, they're not allowed. There There's rules to games, right? There's rules to that. So a, a way that we constrain how somebody is going to do that is maybe those rules for, you know, as an example, I can't I can't just roll a ball and I can't just hold the ball and walk across. And so those are like external constraints of a specific task because all I'm supposed to do is go from point A to point B. But the rules maybe dictate that I have to do that a specific way. And so we can do that. You know, that's just a a basic example of like something that would be applied to like a, a sporting context and rules for the game but we also have rules within our environment in some fashion, right? When we're training athletes, when we're training individuals, we're constraining how that individual may perform that specific task with certain, in certain ways, you know? And so I might put something that limits a particular range of motion, and that could be a constraint that I'm utilizing to dictate how that person is performing that task. I might alter the implement you know, and that could dictate how this person is performing a task. There's a lot of different ways to take this. But ultimately, all I'm trying to do is get a consistent, I'm trying to get a con, a, a consistent outcome uh, from from my input. So ultimately, the, the 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 factors that make those task constraints, you know, really come down to like, you know, what what do you want to do? What are the rules, you know, and and how do I want to manipulate those things in order to to get what I want?
0: You know, it's So there was a couple of other, I guess, philosophies that really made me think when I first came across this, one being Gary Gray and this idea of tweakology and like even to the point of like DNS with Gray Cook of like taking joints away, adding Mm -hmm. joints back in, adding degrees of variability or triplanar movements, adding different levels of excursion. So that would be like this teasing in and teasing out constraints. But then on the way other end of the the continuum, you have a Franz Bosch implicit learning system Mm. that's applying certain constraints to certain parts of the system to either focus in one area or make it more implicitly challenging. So on that example with Bosch, I think that's a pretty cool, interesting one to kind of like unpack a little bit. So if you're not familiar with Franz Bosch, essentially what he does is tries to replicate certain locomotive patterns like running, jumping, hopping, skipping, and make it a a much more proprioceptively different environment by maybe holding onto a dowel or an aqua bag or something where that pattern that we're trying to move with is challenged in some unique way, or it's maybe creating stability in one joint to create freedom of motion or more challenge in the other joints. Let's use, for example, and you, I'm sure some of the listeners might be familiar with Franz Bosch and what they've seen him do, but what would you say Franz Bosch is running with a dowel overhead over wickets, what would that be in terms of task, organism, and environment? And I apologize if that's like, it's not what we prepared for and I'm not not there, but I kind of want to see how you respond to that question because I think it's like the first thing I was my thought process went to when you went into this, this like rabbit hole of okay, these are the tasks. And this is how we apply or take away constraints.
1: Yeah, I mean, to me, it always I think it, this model operates on the backdrop of like, what is the goal, right? So like, in, in some, in all contexts, you're always, you're always applying these inputs with some goal in mind. There's some element that you're trying to get out of this, you know, and so if you're trying to teach, I'm actually not crazy familiar with the Franz Bosch, some of his methodology.
0: Gary Gray, I can go into that direction, like tweak all well, of it.
1: Well, I guess, I guess it still, it still kind of stems from, okay, are you trying to, you know, maybe there's a bunch of different ways to manipulate a a similar like locomotor pattern. I say manipulate, but maybe there's a bunch of ways to alter the task in some fashion that ultimately leads to a, uh, a a more you know you're trying to to alter the the stimulus so that the the proprioceptive system is ultimately interpreting that in different ways and and allowing it to self-emerge into maybe a a pattern that comes out on the other side that's a little bit more representative of something that you're trying to train for um and so if you see in, in this example if you see an athlete that struggles you know to i don't know hold their thorax a certain way or to cycle their legs a certain way or you know they have they have an issue with some of these things you might apply different task constraints in order to hopefully allow that kind of pattern to emerge after you've kind of applied some of these inputs so ultimately it still comes down to there's some form of a goal in mind and that goal can be motor control focused you know i think that that's a totally fine goal, you're trying to improve the the motor control of some specific task. And that that could be a way maybe to to get some of that across. I think in a lot of contexts, when I think about this model, I think about fitness as a goal. Mm-hmm. And fitness typically comes down to altering going after the organism constraints, you know, what are the things that limit someone's ability to do that, because somebody might, in that example, again, somebody might, they they might have this technique of say locomotion. Because they're missing, they're missing ankle dorsiflexion. They're maybe they have a a a previous history of an injury that they're asymmetrical in some fashion, and so you're you're dealing with somebody who is ultimately their expression of some task. You might not, you you might want to alter that, but the the limitation or or the actual constraint is an organism constraint. You know, there's something underneath. The hood that you need to kind of investigate and maybe apply training inputs to that's going to uh, allow that to emerge a different way. But there's certainly other ways to 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 use that. There's there's different ways to use that model, I guess.
0: So I just realized I was looking at the wrong camera the entire time. So I apologize for everyone who's been watching this. So <laughs> we'll keep proceeding though, because you've been dropping some just absolute fire. So let's lean hard in that physiology. You talked about this macro approach and this micro approach in your note and your notes macro. Would you describe as the, the end goal? And then micro is if you're going to like classify it more of like a process oriented goal. Mm -hmm. And then on that note, physiology is a good, a good way to like break this down. And we've talked about this with cardiovascular testing and then fitness testing, you know, this general start point, you know where they need to be to be able to play 48 minutes of basketball or, or whatever period you think like they're a high minute guy and they need to be able to play this many times and there's many sprints up and down the court and this many explosive actions. And they're going to need this much absolute work in a 48 minute game. And from there, you reverse engineering based off of where they're starting from a baseline fitness test. And that's how you're modifying the micro. Is that the, the right way to look at organizational constraint based approach?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think that's definitely a way you can look at that. I think there's, there's, there's evaluations that we use as proxies for somebody's current status, right? Their current ability to perform. And you're really just looking for what are the limitations within their abilities. And there's different buckets that we might, you know, might put, put things into. So there's, you know, biomotor buckets, there's bioenergetic buckets, there's all these things because the sport is a, it's, it's a, it's a, congregation of all these things that are very, you know, have rules, have specificity, there's just a bunch of stuff that goes into it. So I think there's, there's definitely a way to take these, you know, these proxies for performance, find the constraints within those, you know, what limits an individual's ability, maybe to to play 40 minutes, but not just to play 40 minutes, but to play 40 minutes robustly, you know, you know, because they're, 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 they'll give you feedback as to how they're handling that work. So, you know, I think we can use our own proxies to help kind of construct some, you know, better parameters around how we're going to train. And those can ultimately elucidate some of these maybe constraints that they might have to overcome within the sport to, to be able to, to play 40 minutes unscathed. So you that's definitely one way that that I think about like I think about that macro approach you know and then yeah the micro again it's like what is it about what is it about the environment that you struggle with and then how do I identify what the actual kink in the chain is you know and that'll funnel me down some very specific tests like I'll I'll, you know you can get very specific with that So I know, I think I I wrote here, like the constraints led strength profiling, like there's ways to really kind of like really double click on what type of strength are we even talking about here, you know, and how somebody may solve this ground reaction force, you know, problem that they have to deal with for an extensive amount of time, you know? So there's just different ways to kind of click into this stuff, but ultimately, yeah, you're just, you're searching for that kink in the chain. You're searching for what is the limitation?
0: So uh, we, Big part of the reason why I wanted to talk to you about this was this idea of machines versus free weights, and you know we almost had a, uh, a personal epiphany of sorts with this re reevaluating what is good exercise and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Before we even get into that, do you think about let's put your director hat back on and you're back at UCSB and yeah. you're looking at your staff and you're like, how many of these sectors of constraints adjusting constraints whether it's task organism and environment are you putting on your staff's in your staff's responsibility to toggle up and down like when you're looking at a first-year coach and you're like i want them to be very successful and they got maybe a maybe a A lower tiered sport like a golf or a tennis, but you still want them to be very effective with them. Are you putting constraints on the coaches from a programming perspective and how much you're adjusting between those three variables? Or are you even thinking about that in any capacity with your coaches? Hmm,
1: that's a good question. I haven't really thought about that. I, I would imagine that I'm probably not thinking about that directly, but indirectly, I think I am thinking quite a bit about that because. In any case, you're, you know, if we're talking about, if we're talking about working with, say, young coaches and helping them understand this type of, maybe this type of model and how it might apply, I think it's like, it's just a really good regression progression system, right? Like, that's what kind of this is, because when it comes to, like, exercise selection in general, we're always putting constraints on the exercises that athletes do, right, inevitably, like you're going to constrain how somebody performs and execute certain tasks in a number of different ways. The way that you cue them is going to be huge. The way you set them up is going to be huge. The appropriate intensity is going to be huge and how they execute that. The different modalities that you might utilize is going to be different, that ultimately is going to feed into maybe the execution of these things. So I'm always trying to, we're always trying to apply fitness, we're always trying to build progressively over time. And we're trying to do so in a way that's appropriate for the individual in front of us. So I think like dialing in a good progression regression system is the basis of probably how I think about this model in general. But again, we can get into the like, what are the constraints of the athletes? And then that becomes, you have to maybe think a little bit deeper in terms of maybe a little bit more holistically in terms of how you're assessing your given program. And I think that probably would come in layers deeper um, if I'm working with a young coach for sure.
0: So, you know, I guess that was the other big part with the machines. And, you know, what I was thinking about is this dynamic of working with young coaches and them trying to make an impact immediately and early, right? Their confidence is hanging in the balance and their first impression is always in flux because they're always having the sense of, I like, a lot of things to unpack and learn and be good at, yet I still need to be in front of an athlete that can size you up pretty quickly and realize you either don't have the confidence or the charisma to do this at a high level or interact with humans. But on the other note, that you can titrate down the level of, uh, even tasks for the coach instead of them having to do freeway maybe open mm. games all these different complicated mm. tasks you can just put them over there at the leg press or a leg extension and just say coach effort today which yep. a lot of young coaches are probably not as familiar as they should be yeah and they don't really have a bandwidth for understanding upper limit and you know, what is actually going to create some physiological outcome. So yeah. with that being said, did you have that mm-hmm. renaissance when you got re-exposed or maybe even exposed to machines for the first time with working with your athletes? And did you have any epiphany for yourself or empathy for the young coaches you've had work for yourself or the young coach that you were, not too long ago, when you started getting reoriented machines, you're like, wow, this is a really good tool to teach young coaches or coaches in general, how to push and how to overcome and how to go through challenging situations in a safe and effective way.
1: Yeah. Big time, man. I think it's a, it's a, again, you, a machine will allow you to constrain even more degrees of freedom of, of the system. Right. So that's, I mean, that's the beauty of it, but there's definitely an appreciation to how much i guess easier in some ways it makes your life to utilize the principles of progressive overload right to utilize the principles of adaptation i should say and and how we go about progressing somebody in a in a specific way where you're not having to deal with like a lot of motor control factors which you inevitably have to deal with more of those variables when you're using say like more compound movements so yeah, it de- it definitely give, gave me an appreciation for f- yeah, for for a different side of things that I haven't thought as I guess you, you think about but you you now have the ability to apply effectively over time and determine if you're actually creating a physiological change because feedback is feedback and sometimes it doesn't work the way you think it should work as simple as it may seem. So yeah, it it's it's been a it's been a cool five years, you know, really having access to the things that we have access to specifically and learning about getting that feedback of is this particular protocol eliciting a, a, a change in the way that we want it to? And there's ways now that I can maybe look deeper into the machines that I never thought I would actually think I, I would actually think about. It's like, oh, a leg extension is such a simple thing. You just throw somebody on the machine, they kick their leg. You know, they, they bend your leg. It's it's very simple. But when you've seen certain programs and protocols that you believed you coached effectively, actually not elicit a specific change that you thought you might, and and you get feedback and feedback and feedback, you learn that okay, I actually like need to coach the hell out of this a little bit more. So it's it, it's funny how it works, but but there's always just there's always levels, right? There's always just levels. But ultimately, I think. It would have, it would be in some ways yeah, nice as a young coach, maybe to to have more access to these tools when I was when I was coming up and probably develop a, a little more of a skill set around just yeah, just some of the nuts and bolts of of how to how to get people to work. <laughs> and you know, a lot of times.
0: Well, I mean, when I first started, it was really much on the very much of the tail end of high intensity training and doing one set to true all-out failure. And there was a certain presence about those coaches and there was a certain aura about them that they were way more capable of pushing people to a point of, of true physical exhaustion than in the counterpart. And and, and one of the things that was so foundational to their knowledge was the realization that getting them on an isolated joint machine and pushing the absolute failure was somewhere along the line. Someone thought free weight exercises were dangerous to do. Yeah but they still needed to increase the output or the, the or like get some sort of goal. And they, maybe not compensate is the right word, but they definitely responded and reacted to the very simple of like, this isn't necessarily hitting the same number of motor units or hitting as much of this deep CNS fatigue, but damn, we're going to get as much physiological fatigue as we possibly can get in a localized area or put that person to a very uncomfortable place and then pushing well past it. And Mm -hmm. good ones were able to adapt to the modernization of research of multiple sets are better than one set to failure. Compound multi-joint movements are overall more effective than isolated open kinetic chain movements, but we've lost whatever that was. And and I just, the first thing is I'm reading through Newell's model. I'm like, it's just the same thing they felt a long time ago of we're just too open or too low constraints and people are either not really good at coaching this or not very good at, at figuring out where that stress is going and getting some sort of direct outcome. Yeah. And they yeah. just responded by like, let's consolidate it down to one joint, one muscle group at a time. And we'll just see where that soreness. We'll see that rate of progressive overload. We know where to push them. We know how hard to push them. We know how many days a week to do. And then from there it exploded and mushroomed back out but there's really loss in terms of that research or that information we found about how to target and, and really isolate and build progressive overload into a program. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, probably should get some sort of acclimation phase for young coaches to that, to yeah. understand what stress really is and what's supposed to do. And then as we get more, more experienced and understand what is good versus bad. Yeah.
1: There's well, a few, yeah. There's a few things you said in there that, that pop into my head that, the, the point of understanding like when people like if you dive into failure research, it's kind of interesting. Actually, there's different types of failure. We typically think of volitional failure when it comes to these types of uh, activities and like pushing people towards like volitional failure, where essentially you can't do another rep, like you just don't have it. The athlete, is, the person is perceiving like I'm done. And typically people don't they suck at knowing their limits, man. Like it, it, it's like it's tough. If you if you've trained this way, you'll realize that you actually do have a lot more beyond this. Like you're going to hit a certain level of, of discomfort, and then you can actually push it quite a bit farther and continue to push it quite a bit harder. You know, and so I think the these tools give you they give you an ability to do that in a in a, a super safe to fail way, right? Like it, when you're done, you're done. There is really there's, there is technical failure here, but there's limited technical failure that I'm certainly worried about when it comes to depending on, you know, what type of machine we're on or something like that. But I, I think that's, that's huge for a young coach to understand. I probably didn't appreciate or understand maybe the level of stress I could elicit in some of these things, not everything, but when we're, when we're trying to create like hypertrophy is a great example. If you're trying to, if you're trying to actually, create a hypertrophic response, like mechanical tension is king, you really can push people pretty freaking far, especially with some of these again, some of these more single joint, simple, you know, simply executed like movements, you can push people pretty far. And then you can learn a lot from that, right? It's like when, when you when you drive stress to that level, when you drive discomfort to that level, how do you respond in that in that situation do you compensate do you torque your body a certain way you know do you start trying to find ways to use other things you know and compensate by using other muscles to to do this you know do you quit early because you can't strain like there's just so much you can actually learn about training through this process when you really have a safe to fail, you know, exercise. So I think there's, yeah, if I was a younger coach and, and appreciated that a little bit more, it's certainly something that I I think could be could be massively helpful because I think you can push people a lot farther than than even they might have thought, you know? And then it becomes really about how do you program? Like how do you program to adapt this over time? You know, because you're not just going to just come in and just hit a set of failure. And the next time, just all right, like, you know, what do you, what do you do next time? You know, like, do you you keep pushing that? I mean, you can only ride this out for so long, right? So you get into maybe conjugation and like changing exercises and, you know, like changing grips and different things that get, get a little more creative with how you kind of program. And it just, I don't know, it, it becomes maybe a, a it, it's something that I definitely didn't have an appreciation. I came up in the Definitely in the functional training time, man. Like that was my whole thing, and now I've obviously we've we've had this discussion about what is functional, but you know now it's certainly I think quite differently about how these tools might be implemented and and be really helpful.
0: You know, it makes me think, and the the last question I got would be this: you reacting to the environment, right? Off season, fastball they're playing year round, but let's say Mm. hypothetically, you have some sort of control of how many, how much time they're putting on the court. Or if they are putting time on the court, it's a very constrained environment. They're going to get so yeah. many shots, they're going to do so many drills, whatever the, the number of things that very quantifiable. Versus in-season, it's a lot – the environment's a lot less constraint, right? They have games, yeah. they practices, even organism-wise, they have a lot more stress and travel and life, et cetera. Holidays, a lot more immune system in the middle of the winter, playing inside all year, round, all all through the, the fall, winter, and spring. So, with that being said, your program, are you toggling up a high constraint machine-based program when they have a very low constraint? performance or life outside of the weight room versus off season, you have a lot more opportunity to do a lower constraint, very high threshold environment, relatively speaking, or is it like, you just kind of get what you get and you don't get upset and you just keep plowing forward.
1: Yeah, if we're if we're talking about exercise, like specifically, then yeah, probably you're you're probably right. You only have so many, you know, so many bullets, right? So there's in season, you're definitely going to consolidate your stress in general, you're going to your menu of things you're doing are much smaller, and they're more targeted. So in that case, a lot of times you are you are at the the kind of the mercy of you know how big is this individuals menu what is the what is the you know strength that i'm going after and how am i going to apply that through the 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 exercises that are on their menu and then how do i funnel that into what's the essentials you know it's really like i'm always looking for like an essentialist program which is quite difficult because realistically it's it's like i, I still believe in a in a holistic program you know like a, a approach that targets all tissues, all patterns, like those types of things still I think matter quite a bit, but it's just not realistic all the time to be able to to have twenty exercises on your menu. So you have to kind of funnel that into what's essential. And that ultimately is going to get us into things that you can drive maybe some of these more you can drive these adaptation principles much quicker and with much less, you know, cognitive load and ultimately just more targeted physical load, I think. So in that case. You know if we're doing a max effort if if guys have trap bar on the menu great if guys have you know rfes on their menu great but some guys might have pack squat on their menu and that's fine you know and that's going to get us the go after the the thing that we're going after but in a way that is is maybe again the exercise is a little more constrained to what's required of them from a from a coordinative standpoint and they're able to to generate the outputs that we want and that's 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 where we're going so Yes. To answer your question, for sure. It's like, yeah, off season, you're just, you have a, you have a larger menu. You're going to be more, when it comes to exercises, more unconstrained, if you will. And then in season, it's a little bit more, it's a little tighter.
0: Yeah. You know, it's I mean, it's funny. There's a lot of concepts like Dan, John, if it's important to do it every day, which there's context associated with that, right? It's like if I'm working with an athlete that's playing four games and traveling 3000 miles in a week, probably not necessarily going to be tied into the the big three of like some sort of squat carry and swing you know like there's yeah. there's going to be some sort of difficulty with that I'm not saying it's not important yeah those are great like selection of exercises or like a peter atia do your three things yeah ups hinge and some sort of carry yep yeah like that's fine and then you have grossly underdeveloped quads and lower leg and maybe potentially anterior chain in general like yeah i get it but you know that these like blanket statements yeah. are designed to get people started on something yeah not to like take a very specialized population that has a lot of different needs going on and that could be different from oh well, we're doing a lot of the stuff in the pre-practice warm-up or we got them in the training room and we're going to be doing some of these like direct isolated exercises there yeah. so boxes yeah. are checked left and right okay yeah. well here's my job i got 15 minutes and i'm going to focus on these two patterns and yeah be really good at those two patterns and i'm gonna yeah. get them out of here and have a great day see you next week
1: yeah it really and it really like it really rattles your brain man i mean it's like when you have to make like you're always going to have to make some form of concession right within a program but when you really like make a lot when you got to make a lot you know I, I think this again going back to maybe this model it's like what are the true organism constraints? You know, what are the things that bite these dudes? You know, like you look at the, the injuries that they have, the injuries that they they maybe have dealt with uh, in the past. What does playing, you know, four games in a week do to the body? You know, like, what does it do to their bodies? How do these guys actually break down? And then if you're able to maybe focus in on what their actual constraints are to managing that, you can go after things that seemingly are non functional or not what you would typically consider to be like very important in training and you could really go after some things that, you know, you could get more focal with your program and that's what we have to do in a lot of ways. So you're really constrained. But again, I'm, I'm thinking about that from the organism standpoint and there's like two layers to that. It's like, how do you preserve somebody's internal environment as healthy as possible? So that's where you think about like the FRC type stuff of like, I should say the system of FRC, not like FRC stuff, but you know, how do you preserve somebody's internal environment by, ensuring that their joint function is is operating at a high level, ensuring that their their tendons are healthy, their ligaments are healthy, you know, their joints are healthy, they're getting good, you know, feedback from from their movement, all that stuff. And then how do you apply the things, you know, that I think about as like a strength coach, like the stressors that these guys need to be need to be applied to make sure that their nervous system stays tuned up, make sure that you're hitting all the muscle fibers that you need to hit, making sure that they're they're under load in a way that keeps that buffer of the environment that they're exposed to, you know, how do you do that in a in a in a very tough schedule? And I think that's where it's like, you have your you have your components that really preserve that internal stuff. And then you have your components that really make sure you're driving and preserving their, their external outputs. And then you're monitoring that and you're taking that feedback and then you're kind of making little, little adjustments here and there. But it, it just, it's, it's a tough task to follow. There's no program that's like, there's no system that's going to give you the answer. Like there is no system, you know, there's no like, I, I'd love to take boil stuff and just throw it into my environment. Cause that's like, you know, that's where I started. It doesn't, it won't work. You know, it's not, it's not going to, you're not going to be able to do it. And so, yeah, it just, it just, there's just levels of like thought that you have to really put into this to try to to, to try to create the most essentials program, you know, and, and not miss stuff, man, because it's easy to, th- this is what I get at is like, the reason I love like a Boyle-esque model is because you just, you're covering most of your bases, right? You're sprinting, you're jumping, you're conditioning, you're lifting, you're doing all these different patterns. It's well thought out. When you have to make concessions, you always think of like, all right, well, if I take that out, then I'm, I'm completely, I'm just completely eliminating something that could be important, you know, and then I'm going to take this out and then I'm going to take this out and then I'm going to take, take this out and you just get down to like, all right, what's essential, but let, what, what what am I, hopefully I'm not missing something here, you know, and that's, that's where again, the feedback process comes in, but yeah, hopefully that's not too long-winded that, that makes sense, but I mean, yeah, that's what
0: the, the difference is being meaning like everyone will probably interpret this in some way yeah we're all figuring out what a good job is yeah and and more things you're exposed to the more realization how many inherent gaps you have and the more burden of knowledge you understand of where you're weak but that's also a strength it's i'm all going to focus on this and if i know that's a limiting factor i will address it but if it's not Mm. then it's fine i will I can strategically avoid it. Like I don't need to sprint in season cause they're sprinting all the time. Yeah. Or I don't need to do a lot of other things that might be considered an essential thing on most programs yeah. because it's yeah. not necessary. Right. And I think that's the part that's, as we're looking through all this, you know, don't, if you're listening to this and going, damn, it seems like a really intricate, really complicated model. It's, it is, but it also isn't. It's pretty intuitive. It's
1: yeah, it's pretty intuitive. The
0: individual. Like, and the example I would tell you is if you have a 14 year old, probably not maxing them out on snatch and clean and doing 60 inch depth drops. Like, just don't do that, just be common sense of it. So, they the organism is what it is. The task needs to be simplified, and the environment needs to be very simple for that person. Mm-hmm. Successful. Versus, I got a person trying to run across a line in a four year cycle faster than anyone else in the world yeah, you might need to get a little in the weeds on some certain things. They're like, okay, yeah. big toe extension is to the problem. Like that's, they're, they're not going to be able to get a good push off and they're not yeah. going to be at the level they should. And that's that's the, the, the continuum here. It's, yeah, this person on this level is in the 1% and the majority of us normal, non-athletic, regular people just trying to make some improvement, you know, like that it's okay to go, okay, where we fall on this continuum on that model. And then mm-hmm. different parts of the year have different points of emphasis. And, you know, that's the part that I think most people will get too wrapped up in. But, you know, what I would tell, just use that machine example with the young coach, just what can that person who's coaching it and that person in front of him be successful with and just toggle up or down constraints yeah. versus off those three big criteria?
1: Yep. Yeah, so. huge, man.
0: Dude, that's it. That's it. Simple, man. Just write that down and move on. All right, man. Well, thank you so much again for, for just doing the work here, man. This was a great conversation, man. Thank you, Eric. Yeah, I appreciate you, bro. All right, buddy. Lot to unpack. One of the things I want you to take home from this is that we should have some sort of structure and organization to how we choose exercises or drills based off the environment and the individual we're working with. That's simple right? If we're looking at Newell's in any way, it's just having some sort of logic and reason behind everything that we do. If you want to learn more about this, phpodcast.com, sign up for a membership. You get access to this web show, which is the video format, the transcripts, the notes, the articles, the resources, as well as all of the other web shows. Not only that, you get access to a private forum. You can ask questions. You can collaborate and connect with other coaches. Amazing resource right at your disposal, $20 a month. Can't beat it. Stop and start whenever you want. Get discounts on all of our other products. phpodcast.com. Sign up today.